Today we have come to the Sixth Commandment. Of course, it's been some time since we've been in the Shorter Catechism because of uh, my being away for a long time. But I'm very glad to be back into this series. We uh, stopped off with the conclusion of the Fifth Commandment. I'm planning three um, sermons on the uh, the sixth commandment. I <laughs> I don't know if I need to say this to this group or not, but I uh, had an odd thing that happened this morning. Um, when I was preaching, I was confused about the time after being away, and I was thinking that our next service this morning started, the second service started at 10.30, and I was preaching on this, and I looked at the clock, and like, whoa, how did it get so late? And I actually didn't finish the whole of the sermon that I'm getting ready to preach here now because I thought, well, we've got to have the you know, new people have to come in and we have to you know, do all these things to get ready for the next one, get the communion and all that stuff. So anyway, I, I stopped short and then I, I was outside. I still didn't realize it. And I was looking around and then when it got to be 1030, I was looking, there was nobody coming around for the next service. And I was like, where is everybody? And uh, then all of a sudden I realized, <laughs> it's just in my own head. I didn't say anything to anyway. I was like, people aren't really coming around yet. It seems like they should be starting to come by now. And then, wait a minute, it's at 11. <laughs> but after being away, I just had a 10.30 in my head is when the, the morning main service starts. So I, I had a little bit of wrangling about what am I going to do this afternoon? Am I going to preach on the, this whole sermon now here? And then what do I do in Halifax next week? Do I pick up and try to do the rest of it and finish up, which is what I planned to do when I stopped. But um, what I decided is I'm going to go ahead. We're on the live stream here. I'm going to go ahead and preach um, this whole sermon and then uh, maybe encourage people to listen to the last part and, and, and go on. Because I don't want to get our services out of whack where I'm doing one thing there and one thing here because people go from one place to the other week by week. So I kind of have to keep them together. But uh, anyway, I thought maybe I should tell you that. Um, <laughs> just um, it was this thing I've been kind of thinking about this afternoon a little bit of how I'm going to deal with this now. But I'm going to go ahead and uh, do the, the, the whole thing here in one shot, especially since we've got this one recorded and going on live stream. So you can turn over to John 8. That's the scripture I'll be reading in a little bit. We will also begin, as we often do with the Westminster Shorter Catechism sermon series, where we look at the questions that we're dealing with and confess those together as God's people. We only have one now because this is the introductory sermon to the Sixth Commandment, and it is in question 67 where we have the first question on the Sixth Commandment. So question 67, let's confess the answer to this question together. Question 67, which is the sixth commandment? The sixth commandment is, thou shalt not kill. As with all the other commandments that we have looked at, we will see here once again that when we look at this commandment as those who love God and who want to please Him, that it has a whole lot to say to us. That it not only prohibits actual murder, but everything that is associated with it and leads to it, such as putting yourself and others in harm's way, like speeding through a neighborhood or leaving your lawnmower running, you know, when you go in to get a drink or something when the little kids are out playing, you know, this, this kind of stuff that would harm people. It includes that and includes hating someone, which is 
an element of murder. There's hatred that it reaches its climax when we, when we would kill someone. Sinning against someone that they would then have reason to hate us. In other words, we're, we're contributing to murder if we are going about our society wreaking havoc and, and, and de- dealing deceitfully with people and things like that. There's, there's all kinds of ways that we break this commandment. And when we love God and we want to please Him, we want our lives to be filled with, with everything that pertains to all of His commandments so that we, we don't look at them in a narrow, legalistic way where it only has, well, I don't ever kill anyone. I don't think I'll ever kill anyone. I'm, I'm okay with that commandment. I don't need to think about that. A lot of people, oh, yeah, yeah, mur- yeah I've never did that. But yeah, if we look at it the other way, it comes from God, then we're going to see that we've all come short in these regards. So we'll be looking at those things more in the next couple of weeks when we look later in future weeks at what is required and then what is forbidden in the Sixth Commandment. But today, as this is an introduction to the Sixth Commandment, I want to begin by looking at the words themselves that are used in the Sixth Commandment. Then secondly, to look at the foundation of this commandment, which is God's authority. He alone has the right to decide who will die and who will live. And if we miss this, by the way, as we're going to see, we'll be very confused when we try to apply this commandment if we begin to put it about man um, instead of God being the one that has the authority. Our, our society, as well as the church today, is very confused about this. So I'm going to be talking about that a fair bit. And thirdly, we'll look at how, the great, offense, how great an offense murder is, that we will see that it is an attack against God himself, that murder is an attack against God himself. So although we will not be looking at John 8 until we get to that third point, I want to go ahead and read it to you now. Mostly we'll be looking at the sixth commandment itself for the first two points. But then we'll, at John 8, we'll be looking at that, that um, it's actually an attack on God himself. So I'll begin reading in John eight thirty one, and we'll read to verse 47. So please give attention to God's word. Again, starting at uh, John eight thirty one. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because Because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen from my father and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. 
You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. There we'll end the reading of God's word. Kind of interesting to see this where he's talking about you won't hear me in relation to what we looked at in Luke 15 today where Jesus had said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And had just been talking about how you need to you know, leave all to follow him, fully come to him. And then it had the, the uh, tax collectors and the sinners came to hear him. And uh, that, that's such a powerful connection there between those two chapters. And here you have these guys. Okay, here are those Jews and the, the Pharisees and the scribes that are dealing, that Jesus is talking to. And they're, they're saying to him, um, or it says of them that um, they, they won't hear, they can't hear Jesus when he's speaking the truth to them because they're of their father, the devil. So as we think about this, like we're going to come to that, uh, that reading from John, as I said, in a little while, but we'll see that the reason that people, that Satan really wants to do man in is because man is the image of God. And that's why this is such a great sin. But again, that will be our third point. Let's uh, begin looking at the words. Draw your attention, first of all, here. What does the word kill or murder mean in the sixth commandment? And at first, it might seem a little bit silly to ask that question because everybody knows what it means to kill someone. You know, even children know that. But don't be too hasty about saying that because I've run into people, I expect you've run into people who have used this commandment to say that we shouldn't kill animals. You ever run into people saying that? And Because uh, it says you should not kill. Hey, that's what it says. That's what it'll say. And others who use this commandment to say that it's wrong for the courts to sentence people to die when they've committed a crime because hey, the Bible says you shall not kill. And others who say that it is wrong for a country to engage in war, he says you shall not kill. And then there is the question of accidental killing of someone, what we call involuntary manslaughter, driving recklessly so that you kill someone in a crosswalk or something like that. Is that included in this particular commandment, in this word? Is involuntary manslaughter also prohibited? So, Okay, what about killing animals? Is that forbidden here? And for that matter, why don't we throw plants in too? What about killing plants? Should we kill, can we kill plants? If we look at the word that's used in the original Hebrew text, it's rashak, then we'll find that it is a word that is only used for the taking of human life, interestingly. So this word's a little bit different than our word kill. Rashak is never used of killing animals or plants. That may be one of the reasons why some modern versions translate it then with the word murder instead of the word kill. We're going to see why murder has a little bit of problem too as far as corresponding with exactly with the Hebrew word when we get down the way here. But going on with this, with animals, even if the Hebrew word were not more specific than our English word, we could still know that God has clearly given us permission to kill both plants and animals. In the garden, he gave us permission to eat the fruit of the earth. Genesis 1.29. Now, this one is not usually disputed, of course, that we can eat plants. 
you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be around very long. <laughs> but but uh, Genesis 1.29, God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed to you, it shall be for food. One of the reasons that I include this is because if people are going to use that, that it says you shall not kill, so you shouldn't kill animals when you to eat them and that sort of thing. Well, you supply the same thing to plants because you have to kill them in, in order to eat them. Um, and after the flood, uh, God gave us permission, though, to eat animals as well. And if God gave us permission, we have permission. Genesis 9.3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. Now, the Lord may have granted this permission after the flood because of the changes that came about at the time of the flood where people didn't live as long, they weren't as healthy, it was harder for them to get good nutrition, that sort of thing. Maybe partly it was a mercy in that way. I think it was a mercy in a lot of other ways too because I really like hamburgers and steak and shrimp and things like that. And uh, it would be kind of, uh, you know, now that I'm accustomed to those things, I, I wouldn't like to have them taken away. But uh, the Lord has given us things to enjoy. He delights and he, he wants us to enjoy things and to, to receive them with thanksgiving. Because, I mean, why did he make all these great tasting things? You know, why did he make cows? You know, so we could have steak. So it's, um, these, these are good things that we enjoy. But in any case, it's clear that the sixth commandment does not prohibit the killing of plants and animals if God himself, who gave us the sixth commandment, has told us plainly that we can kill plants and animals. And of course, we should not abuse this liberty. God has made all the plants and animals. They are beautiful and wonderful parts of his creation. And we should delight in in what he has made. He's given us, as human beings, he's given us dominion of the earth. And we're to look after it and to care for it and protect it as guardians. All that is in it not with oppressive government policies, not that kind of uh, protection that, that play on our fears, but with responsible management of what we, what we have been given. Here are a few places in Scripture that speak about this. In Deuteronomy twenty nineteen, the Lord commands that the armies of Israel are not to mindlessly destroy the trees of the field when they besiege a city. In Proverbs twelve ten, it says, A righteous man regards the life of his animal, but the tender mercies of the wicked are cruel. It's a person with a wicked heart that would be cruel to an animal just to be cruel. There's nothing in that. There's no reason for that. And uh, then there's the fourth commandment, which tells us that we should even give our animals uh, rest on um, on this Sabbath day. So the sixth commandment does not prohibit the killing of plants and animals. But what about, so if you, if you run into someone that, that brings that up, you can tell them that, no, you know, God has given us full permission for that. What about uh, capital punishment or going to war, okay, punishing someone who's committed what would be called a capital crime? Many people will argue that if a person commits a crime like murder, they should not be executed because God says you shall not kill. They say that's God's commandment. And likewise, they'll say it's wrong for Christians to go to war because the Bible says you shall not kill because Jesus said, love your enemies. So are they right about that? Somebody, let's say a clear case of a war. Like we could start talking about when is a war just and that gets to be a huge discussion. But supposing that, you know, you're, you, you're in a little city, 
little town, little village, and the village next to you, uh, they come over to uh, attack your village, and they, you know, they want to, they want to kill all the the men and take the women and slaves or something like that. So, you know, can you fight? You know, or do you just say, oh well, whatever, you know, because we, we we're not supposed to kill, so we'll just let it all go. Yeah, God is. What is God authorized about that? Well, let's look and see. Once again, if we look at the Hebrew word rashak that's used here, which is translated kill in the sixth commandment, we're going to find that it's almost exclusively used to refer to unjust killing. And that includes all the places where we're told of people being slaughtered at war or of God slaying them as a punishment. Okay, executing the one that has done wrong. This is perhaps another reason that some have chosen to translate with the word murder. Because when a court sentences a person to be executed for just reasons, that person is killed, but we do not say that that person is murdered. So this commandment does not prohibit the uh, execution of of those. The, The only time that this word, rasha, is used to refer to a just killing is in Numbers 35.30. And here is actually a stylistic usage of Raksha in a place that is actually calling for the execution of murderers. Quite interestingly, it's a play on words. Listen how it's done. Numbers 35.30. Whoever kills a person, the murderer, that's our word Raksha, shall be put to death. And that's the same root word, Raksha. The murderer shall be murdered, you could say, on the testimony of witnesses. So it's using the word in an, in an, an extraordinary way as a wordplay, just to, uh, to bring out what I mean by stylistic. We could translate it like this. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be murdered on the testimony of witnesses. So the word rashak is, um, is not used for that kind of executions, which are clearly authorized. But even if Rashik did refer to just executions, the Lord who gave his people the sixth commandment telling them not to kill each other also at the same time commanded that those who commit certain offenses were to be or at least could be executed in, in, as a way of justice and punishment. In law, rules can have exceptions, right? So even if the law, you shall not kill, was if, if that word meant also like killing someone in execution. It was like our word, it was used either way. When you have a law, you can have an exception that the one who gave the law has given us. And that an exception would be very clearly that executing those who have um, committed capital offenses. So, we, so we've seen then a, a couple of ways that, um, that Russia is narrower than the word kill, more like our word murder. But now we need to see the way I mentioned before that Rashak is broader than our word murder, which may be the reason that some translations stick to the word kill. The word Rashak is used, the word Raksha is used not only for murder, but also for what our courts call involuntary manslaughter. It's frequently used this way, in fact. For example, if a fellow is using his axe and the head of the axe is not properly secured on the handle so that the axe head flies off the handle and it kills his neighbor, 
He wasn't against his neighbor. He wasn't trying to kill him. He didn't plan to kill him. But his neighbor is dead, nevertheless, and this guy was careless. Or if he does not put up a fence around his roof, and they use their roofs, of course, for getting together with their friends and that sort of thing, and your friend falls off the roof, then you bear a responsibility because you, you should have put a roof up because it's not a safe situation. So he fell off and he died. He would, you would be said to have killed him. This word raksha is used in that case, where we wouldn't use the word murder in that case, in our word murder. So, um, and I've mentioned a few other examples for us already, like reckless driving. Another would be letting a vicious dog loose who ends up killing someone when you knew the dog was, was vicious, kills a child or something. This is a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not kill. In the past, and now I need to talk about something especially that is relevant to us right now that has been of great, um, great troubling thing to the church and to the society at large. In the past two years, we've been faced with a great question about putting people in harm's way by spreading COVID-19. I believe we've been too quick to render judgment on our brothers about this. For some reason, there has been a lot of fear-mongering that has been employed. The way that salesmen use fear-mongering, if they want to sell you a health remedy, they want everybody to be like, oh no, I'm going to get cancer. And then, you know, but if you take this supplement, you'll never get cancer. I remember going to a, a, a presentation by a chiropractor where they said, hey, if you get our chiropractic treatment, you, you'll take care of heart disease, cancer, um, you know, cholesterol, like all this stuff like from a chiropractor. And it was like, whoa, obesity. I mean, they, it was everything. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of tactics that's used. Like, you're going to die unless you get this remedy. From the outset, there has been, with this COVID situation, extensive reporting, not of how many people die of COVID, but rather of how many people died with COVID, which is an entirely different calculation. If you reported how many people died with a common cold when they had a common cold and that was posted on the news every day, we would think that colds were the worst thing that could ever happen to anyone. And I'm not saying that the, I think the coronavirus is kind of a kind of, a cold is a kind of a coronavirus, but the, the COVID-19 is worse for sure than an ordinary cold. But if you publish information that's directly making people afraid, that's misinformation in a sense. It's misrepresenting the the fact that many of these people, they died of other causes primarily. An extensive CDC study that was done from March to March, March 2020 to March 2021, found that 64.2%, to give the exact number, of those who had COVID when they died had at least, get this, six or more other health issues that contributed to their death. Six or more. So these were not healthy people. 62% of them were not healthy people. And only 0.9% died who had no other known issues. So if you didn't have any what they call comorbidities at all, this study said, hey, 
that took of the people that died of COVID, that was less, slightly less than 1% of those who died. In other words, healthy people don't get this or don't die from this ordinarily. People say, oh, I know someone. Yeah, sure, there's 1%. Yeah, you, you can find people that did. But normally, just like if, if you get a cold, there are a regular, there'd be a certain number of people that would die from that. But you could always find someone. But it's not that much of a killer for healthy people. So with all this fear, lockdown measures were imposed upon people with no symptoms because it was possible for those people to be carriers of the virus without knowing it. Yet at the same time, careful studies were done that argued that economic impact of these lockdowns have caused more deaths worldwide than they have prevented and have also brought many other harms to society. Then the vaccines were introduced that seemed to be a driving force all along, waiting for the vaccine, waiting for the vaccine. They were introduced to save lives. Yet these vaccines are experimental and have dangerous side effects, many of which are not reported. And the long-term effects cannot be known because we don't have long-term studies yet. We can't. It's not been around that long. Even so, they're being mandated for those for whom the virus poses very little risk, such as healthy people that we just saw, or uh, children, or uh, those who have already had the virus. Furthermore, doctors have found effective treatments for COVID-19, but these have not been promoted, but in cases, testimony of, of faithful doctors that say that these have been suppressed. So many are suspicious because of the fear mongering, the lockdown of healthy people, and the unprecedented push of an experimental vaccine. What all this means is that one Christian might conclude, now I know I've kind of presented one side of this especially, but one Christian might conclude that vaccines are a greater risk for healthy people than the virus, while another thinks that the vaccines are the way to go. And we're going to come up with differences with our brothers and sisters about the conclusions that we reach based on the things that we have looked at. The reason I've presented the other side is because that's the side that's not very well known. The side that's well known is uh, on the news every day. My position in all of this all along has been that we must be careful about charging those who choose not to get vaccinated or oppose lockdowns of healthy people. We should not charge them with violating the sixth commandment. We're making a judgment that is not really appropriate when we do that, that they are somehow nefariously or deliberately don't care about their neighbor. They may be doing what they're doing very likely because they do care about their neighbor and believe that the risk of this, this uh, vaccine are worse for healthy people than of not having it. That's a judgment that, that people are going to make. But nor should we charge those who do choose to get vaccinated or support lockdowns with violating the Sixth Commandment because we say, oh, well, don't you realize those are killing more people, the lockdown's killing more people than it, than it saves, and this sort of thing. We don't know that. This is, this is not to say that those who are, at the same time, this is not to say that those who are perhaps knowingly spreading false information or suppressing true information are not guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. They manifestly are guilty of breaking if they know and they're publishing false information that is destroying and putting people in harm's way. 
suppressing things that, because they want the vaccine to go forward or exaggerating things because they're against it, whatever it is. It is to say that from the information we have available, we have to make the best decisions we can and leave the rest to the Lord. Just do so with, um, just, just as we do with deciding what health advice we will follow. For example, uh, vitamin D has been shown to have a huge benefit to health. But if someone doesn't take vitamin D, then it's not for me as a busybody Christian to go up and say, you're violating the sixth commandment because you don't take vitamin D every day. That's not my task, nor is it right for, for them to, to tell me that I, I shouldn't be taking it for some reason. In the same way, if I decide that potato chips are so bad for people that I will not eat them, uh, I have to say I'm a long way from deciding that. But if I did decide that, I have no business imposing that view on my brother and accusing him of breaking the sixth commandment because, you know, for either eating them or selling them. That's not... You see, what I'm trying to say here is when we're looking at the Sixth Commandment, yeah, if, if we're doing stuff that, that is harmful to life, that puts people in danger, that puts their health in a bad way, yeah, that's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. But there's this whole area in there where we get to be too uh, tightly wound up about health and sometimes Christians will have big debates about health food and you know what you should eat and all this kind of stuff and they'll accuse each other of sinning because you know you're not being careful enough with your with your health you don't exercise and you know whatever it is yeah if we see someone that is obviously like destroying their health by their eating and their you know their lifestyle or whatever we might say hey buddy you know, did you think about this? You know, this God says that, you know, this is, we need to look after our bodies and, you know, this is a responsibility that we have. But, but let's be careful. But again, if nefarious things are happening, such as deliberately spreading false information, those matters will definitely be judged and they ought to be exposed if they're discovered and prosecuted by the courts of our land. But the point is that God does not call us to be anxious about the details of our health and safety. And I think even in this situation, we have to be careful that we don't get too wound up. I mean, everybody that takes the vaccine is not dying. There may be things we don't know about they are going to happen. Yeah, there may be. There may be with a lot of other things. There may be some foods we're eating right now that everybody's eating. We don't know what they do to us. and We're going to find out a few years later. That's the world that we live in. And it's not for us to get all worked up and uptight. God is just saying, hey, don't go out and put people deliberately in harm's way unnecessarily. But if I could put it this way, but relax. Like about the, when it comes to things that you can't fully sort out or you can't fully know all the details, we don't have to get all worked up about that. God calls us not to be reckless with our lives. Now enough on that. <laughs> Understand that the Bible makes the important distinction between voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. Obviously, killing someone because you hate them is worse than killing someone accidentally because your axe head wasn't on tight. But you still bear some responsibility for that axe head. This is where we get our distinction from between voluntary and involuntary manslaughter is from the scripture. 
Our law was originally developed from English common law, which was based on scripture principle. So it's obviously not the same thing to hit someone in a crosswalk unintentionally as it is to hunt them down to kill them. In Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 19, God makes special provision for those who have accidentally killed their neighbor, not having hated them beforehand. The killer is not to be executed in this case, but they are to be shut up in special cities called cities of refuge for a time. The reason for that was in the conscience of the people at that time, it was seen as a person's duty, a relative's duty especially, to avenge the death of their near relation. This was a deeply held conviction, yet the Lord made it clear that it was not right to execute someone for involuntary manslaughter. They would feel like, I ought to do this, I must do this for the honor of my brother or my sister that was you know, killed by the axe head or whatever that, that flew off the handle. I've got to kill that guy for the, for the sake of my sister. And God said, no, this was, this was not a deliberate thing. Let the person go and be isolated, kind of like being in jail, go to this city of refuge, and they can't leave that place because we realize you know, it's going to be really hard for the relative here that feels this. And he gave, he gave them some space with that. Um, it was a punishment, again, you know, to go to this city because you were careless. You, just like we have punishments for hurting someone, even when it's an accident. And this provision also helped the relative then to, to, to cool off because they, they would be there until the, the high priest died. So I hope that gives you a good understanding of how the word kill or murder is used in the Sixth Commandment. Let's just summarize. The, the word used in the Sixth Commandment for kill does not include killing of plants and animals. Never used that way. It does not include the just killing of those who commit capital offenses or the slaughter of enemies in war. It does not include that. But it does include not only voluntary, but also involuntary manslaughter. So that's the word that's used. Now, the next thing that I want to show you is the foundational authority for this commandment. It should be obvious to us that with the commandments, it is God's authority that is behind them all. But it seems that this is something that the church at large is not at all clear about with the sixth commandment, as we shall see, it's causing a lot of confusion for us today. So I want to put this forth to you. The next thing I want to put forth is that God alone has the right to decide who will live and who will die. Life is God's prerogative and not anyone else's. We need to come to grips with the fact that we do not have authority over life and death. This is even so with plants and animals. Just a moment ago, I pointed out to you that we're permitted to kill plants and animals for food and for other purposes, but there is something important to realize about this. It's not simply that we have a natural right to kill them because we're bigger or smarter, something like that. It's that God, who alone has authority in this matter, has given us permission. I have given to you every herb of the field, God says. If he had not given us this permission, then it would be wrong for us to do it. It's not ours. God is the one who made the plants and animals. You did not create them. He did. They belong to him. He tells us what to do with them, how to use them. It is true that in his kindness, he made them for us. But it's also, it's also true that he has given them to us as his regents. And it, but if he had not given them to us, we would have no right to take what he has created and do with it as we please. 
And here's the thing that is really hard for us to accept. You do not even have authority over your own life about when you live and when you die. We did not create ourselves, but God made us. He gave us life. Genesis 2-7 describes how He formed us from the dust of the ground and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. That means that He also and He alone has authority to take away life. He told our first parents who represented us all that if they broke away from His authority by eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. God have authority to do that? Yes. He gave life. He could take life away for whatever reasons that, that He deems. They ate, and he passed upon them the sentence of death. That's why we die. God alone has the right to sentence us to die, and he has sentenced us to die. It is actually an evidence of the fall, an evidence that we broke away from God's authority, that we claim to have authority over our own lives. In paganist societies, it is thought that either the governing authorities or the individual or both have this right It is common for dictators and wicked kings to execute whomever they deem to be undesirable or displeasing to them in some way. Saul was so wrong when he went after David and used public authority that he had been given from God to pursue a personal enemy that he didn't like who had done no wrong. And David himself, he, he was repulsed by the very idea that but he fell into that himself, what we saw today when he killed Uriah. He used his authority as a king to say, Joab, put that guy in harm's way. So it's, very, it's a very wicked thing, but that's a pagan way of thinking. You're the king, you can decide. Somebody's in your way, deal with it. It's common for in families as well. For fathers or mothers in our society, to be thought to have the authority over whether their child, children live or die. A Roman father would look at a newborn and do the thumbs up or the thumbs down if he didn't like that child. Like, I don't want it, get rid of it. Whatever, it was, whatever his pleasure. Now, in our society, mothers, mothers who are the nurturers of children, when they conceive a child, do the same thing. Or, and we believe that mothers have the right or the authority to do that with their children. God has not authorized that. They do not have that right. It's a monstrous thing for them to take that upon themselves. And it's also common to think that individuals have authority to take their own life if they decide that life is not worth living anymore. You do not have that authority any more than you do to take someone else's life that you decide it's not worth, that you don't want them to live anymore. This is evidence of the fall because it shows clearly that we do not recognize God the Lord as the only one who has the right to decide who is to live and who is to die. God's people in both the Old and New Covenant have, when they are faithful, recognize the fact that God alone has this authority. Now, we can get into all kinds of complicated questions about you know, life support and I'm pulling the plug and all of those kind of things. And ethics teachers you know, and theologians uh, get into those things and wrestle them out. 
And there's areas here again that are going to be difficult for us to navigate. But the overall principles is what I'm giving you here. Many Christians in our day have lost sight of where the authority lies. And that's what I really want to get at because that's a huge problem. It throws everything out of kilter. For example, there are many nominal Christians who give authority to a mother to decide if the child that she has conceived lives or dies, as I was just talking about. Look at, like, in the United Church, that's the general view. In some of the mainline liberal churches, that's the view that you have. And it is becoming more and more common for these nominal Christians to also believe that an individual can decide when they live or when they die. They can decide when they want to end their life. It's your life. You can do what you want with it. No, it's not. That's not what the Scripture teaches us. But there are also more evangelical-type Christians who are very unclear about God's authority in this matter. Take abortion. They rightly understand that abortion is wrong, but instead of saying that it's wrong because only God has authority to decide who is to live and who is to die, they say that it's wrong because the baby has a right to life. And you see, okay, it's one thing to say that, in a society where everybody knows that God is the one who authorizes these things and so the right has been given to us by God. But it's quite another thing to say that in a society like ours that's humanistic, where when you talk about right to life, what that means is that they have a natural, intrinsic right as a human being to life. We don't. God only is the authority who decides when we live, when we die. We can't say that He's violated our rights if he takes us out when we're two years old. That's God's prerogative. I understand that many who say this are saying that this is because God has given them that right. But that's not really accurate and is a great distortion when we look at how it's used in our society. Nobody has the right to life in that way. It is more the case that nobody has the right to take away anyone's life, including their own, without authorization from God. If we talk about the right to life, we take God out of the equation, possibly for expedience so that we can get more people on our side, that people will listen to us and you know, that more people would listen if we, if we leave God out. But the very root of the problem that needs to be fixed, if, that, that God would want us to, to, to pursue, is that we have departed from God. That's what our problem is. We're not accomplishing anything if we just get people to say, oh yeah, abortion is bad because the babies are cute or, or whatever. That's not, the issue is that God has not authorized us to take their life. Let me stress that. Our goal is to see people reconciled to God, not just to see them embrace the right views about abortion or about um, gun control or something. Sure, as citizens, we value a society that's structured around just laws and and where things are life is valued and that sort of thing but our society is not structured around his commandments if it's if we don't hold to the very first commandment we have no other gods before him god has called us not to mere political reform but to preach the gospel that calls people be reconciled to god that's the message and when you're reconciled to god then you come under God's authority and then you obey His law because he's, you recognize that He's the one. If you don't have that, then you've got no foundation for all the things that you're promoting. Besides, when we leave God out of the equation and say that abortion is wrong because it violates the baby's right to life instead of God's law, it creates an additional problem here. 
it creates a problem when it comes to the subject of suicide. And we've run into that. Because if I have the right to life, that little baby has the right to life as an intrinsic right, that, that implies that I have a right to take away my life. Everyone has been disturbed lately about assisted suicide, and we ought to be disturbed about it. But the truth is that we have been moving in that direction for a long time by leaving God out of the picture. In faithful Christian societies, suicide has always been seen to be a sin, the sin of murder, because you're destroying a life that belongs to God. Say, well, it's my life. No, ultimately, you belong to God. He's your creator. Yet over the last few decades, you see, we've been moving, and even the church, toward feeling sorry for those who are suicidal rather than charging them with sin. Now, I don't mean that when someone's life is so bad that they want to kill themselves, they don't want to live anymore, that we don't have compassion on someone like that and reach out to them and and try to point them in the right way. But what do they need most of all? They need to come and see who God is because they've missed that. And, And their life is a wreck because they're not responding to the living God. So we, we need to, to, to turn them back. It, it might seem cruel to add to the misery of the one who is so distressed that they want to take their own life, but in fact, it's the best thing you can do for such a person to point them to the Lord who is our reason to live and show them that they belong to Him. No wonder that they want to take their life if they think that it's just uh, is wrong to take away uh, their, their own life as, as someone else's. I mean, they, they need to, if they don't realize that, they, they need to see that their life is to be poured out for the Lord and for others. They have been totally living for themselves. In the end, it doesn't even really matter if I'm happy. I'm here to serve the one that made me. I belong to him. Of course, the truth is that when we do serve him, Jesus says we will find our life. We will find happiness when we give up our life and serve him. But if I'm just looking for my happiness and saying, well, I'm not happy, so therefore I'm not going to live, I'm living for the wrong thing. I'm living for myself. The implication of this is that if I face very hard times, I have no right to take my life. God has not authorized that. Instead, it is for me to pray earnestly and then seek by God's grace to bring glory to him in my ordeal. You can see that this is a totally different way of thinking because it's not about me and my rights but it's about God and His authority. We are not living our lives for Him every day. If we're not doing that, this is an alien thought to us. What we really need is to come to Jesus Christ so we can be truly saved. When we do, He brings us back to our Heavenly Father and we begin to live for Him the way that we were meant to do all along. And if we are believers and we're not living for Him, we need to repent and we need to be restored. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.15 of Jesus, He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. So if God has appointed a hard life for me, it's not for me to say, well, no, I don't want to do that. I don't have that authority. By His cross, we're not only forgiven, but also reconciled to God. Our relationship with God is restored so that we can recognize that our lives belong to Him. And then we can find meaning even in our sufferings. We can honor His Son and glorify Him and live by His Spirit. I do not own my life. He owns it. So you see that God alone has authority then to decide who should live and who should die. Yet I should mention that God can and does appoint men as agents to be His executioners. 
in certain cases. You know, just quickly, I've already mentioned that with the, when the sixth commandment says you shall not kill, it's not forbidding those in authority that God has given from executing those who have committed offenses that are worthy of death. We're told in Romans 13 that human governors are God's agents to punish wrongdoing and that they're given the sword to do that, which means they're given the power of death, which is, short, is shorthand for saying they have the power to execute when you say that they've been given the sword. This does not at all mean, as some pagan kings and dictators seem to think, like I mentioned before, that they have authority to execute whoever displeases them. That's not how it works. God has appointed rulers to execute those who commit offenses that God says are worthy of death. They, they are to do this not only for the good of the society in order to restrain sin, but also for the meeting out of justice before God. God is offended with societies that tolerate murder and do not punish murder with even death. The blood cries out against the uh, land and adultery and blasphemy and such things. And if these things are not addressed by the rulers of the land, God will bring that society down by his own hand of judgment. And more people will die than those who would have been executed if things had been enforced. Far more people will die as a result of negligence in punishing sin than would ever have died if righteous executions had been served. Even Christians in our society recoil when they hear that. Why? Because the same problem we saw before. We have taken the authority of life and death into our own hands, into our own sentiments. And we've said, that doesn't seem right to me, that someone should, a murderer should be executed. Oh, no, 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 that, that's not right. We never, never should do that. Who are you to say that? You see, who's in authority here? If God says this, it will do more good if we do what he has said. Now we're ready to move on to our third topic about the sixth commandment. We've seen that murder is very wrong because we take what belongs to God, human lives, and destroy them. But now I want to show you how murder is even worse than just taking a human life. There's more to murder than that. I've already mentioned it after we did our reading. At its roots, murder is an attack against God himself. In John 8, Jesus explains that Satan is the original murderer. He is speaking to the Jews who are wanting to kill him. And he says, John 8, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. How did Satan commit the first homicide? Jesus says he's a murderer from the beginning. He murdered the entire human race spiritually. Adam and Eve had been made in the image of God. God does not have a body like we do. It is not in that way that we are made in his image, not that we have a physical likeness to God but that he made us to be social beings who, like him, who love, who are able to know God, who are able to respond to him, who are moral beings. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have loved one another for all eternity, and we were made with the ability to love God and to love each other as well, to do good to one another, to serve, to be holy and upright, to live in wisdom with one another, all the things that God has 
we are to reflect is his image. Yet God told Adam and Eve that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they and their posterity would die. And they did. They ate. And right then they became dead in sin. No longer were they the perfect, beautiful image of God. They were now spiritually dead. They were still his image, but now they were a distorted image of God, an image that misrepresents rather than rightly represents, an image that tells lies, Satan's the father of lies, instead of the truth about God. We no longer show in our life what God is like. Now you can see why Jesus ties murder in with lying in John 44. Because Satan took man, who was the true image of God, and made him into a false, misrepresenting image of God. And God constituted Adam in such a way that all of his posterity would be like him. Because Adam was corrupted and became dead in sin, it meant that all of his posterity would also be born in sin, dead in sin from then on. All that were born by ordinary generation of a father and mother. Jesus accepted being born of a virgin. Satan murdered the entire human race spiritually. In John 8, these Jewish leaders, Jesus says that they're showing themselves to be Satan's children because they wanted to murder Jesus. Here was the one who had come who is the image of God. The perfect image of God. Jesus is the perfect image of God, and that is why they hated him. He is God, and he is also the Son of God, the Father. God sent him in human flesh that he might restore men and women to be God's image in truth again, a true image instead of a false one. And he himself came as the perfect image of the Father in human flesh. Jesus is telling these Jewish leaders that they are wanting to kill him because he is of the truth. You see that? That's why they hate him, because he is of the truth, which is of God. Not only do they hate him because he tells them the truth about God, but verse 40 says, but now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard of God. Abraham did did not do this, but even more because he is of the truth, just like God, the perfect image of God. He is God in the flesh that Satan hated in the beginning, the image of God. In verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. They hate him because as Hebrews 1.3 puts it, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Satan hates Jesus for the same reason that he hated Adam at creation. So you see that at its roots, murder is an attack on God. We might even say that every homicide is an attempted deicide because it is an attack on God in the only way that we can get at him, by attacking his image. It is just like what you see when there is a despised dictator. And what do they do? They make a poster of him and they burn it. 
If they can't get at him, they get at his image. You know, somebody that politician you don't like, make them into a dartboard. You know, that, that kind of thing. That's what we're talking about. They could not get at him, so they attack his image. So every murder of a human being is an attack on God, an attack on his image. I don't mean that that's the conscious, mo- conscience, conscious motive of every murderer. No, it's often against the individual or maybe fear that that individual is going to expose them or something or, or that they want to get an inheritance or, or some other motive that drives a person to kill their neighbor. But in every murder, there is a blatant disregard for the image of God. The very fact that so many murders are committed without even thinking about that fact that we are destroying the image of God shows how far we are fallen from God, how much we ignore God in our thinking. Even though we are fallen, though, we are still the image of God. Yes, a distorted image, but we are still those who represent him. God will either restore his image in us or cast us in the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is his prerogative. But we are not to destroy his image. We're not to take anyone's life unless, as we've already seen, it's authorized by him. So the greatest offense about killing about the unjust killing of another person is that it is an effect that, that it is an effort to eliminate what represents God. This, in fact, is the very reason that murder is a capital offense. Don't think it'd be a capital offense otherwise. It's an attack on the image of God. Genesis 9, 6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. That's the reason. Perhaps this will help you understand 1 John 4, 20, which says, if someone says, I love God, okay, now we're talking about a kind of a form of murder here, a lesser form where you hate your brother. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? 1 John 4.20 You cannot murder another person or take your own life without disregarding God whose image we are. So if somebody has a low value of human life, they hate God. You can't, you can't separate the two. Of course, this also shows why it is worse to persecute believers and kill them than it is unbelievers because believers are the ones who have come to Christ to be restored as God's image bearers and that's why they are persecuted because they are hated they have been they have come to be forgiven and reconciled and to once again live as God's children instead of the devil's children persecution is fueled even more directly by hatred for God because it is an attack on those who in a fallen world are the most like him Redeemed people are the most like him. They're the ones that are persecuted. The more we're like him, the more we will be persecuted. They speak the truth, but they're also set apart to live the truth. Remember, I've told you before in Ephesians where it says speaking the truth in love, that the word speaking isn't even there. It literally is truthing in love. You're you're doing truth is the way we might say it. We don't have an English word that's equivalent like that for truth, but that's the idea. So, Persecution is fueled directly by hate for God. It's an attack on those who are most like him. But even the murder of the wicked is still an attack on the image of God. 
So in the end, you can see how it all comes back to the greatest commandment. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and all our strength. Unjust killing is an attack on the image of God. If we love God, we will love and cherish God's image. And I might add as well, we will come to Christ and eagerly seek to be renewed in God's image by His grace. If you love God, you'll want to be an image that depicts God in all that He is in truth. And you will do evangelism rather than murdering and hating your neighbor, reaching out to them, delighting in seeing these who are made in the image of God and yet have become distorted to see them restored like we looked at with the prodigal son today, that all heaven rejoices when someone is brought from death into life because then they're brought, you see, to, to represent God and to, to glorify Him, to live in His house. If you don't care about these things, then you are a murderer at heart, like your father the devil. You don't love man as God created him to be, the image of God. You want man dead rather than alive if you don't want the people around you and yourself to be godly and to be like him. Please stand and let's ask God to help us. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love toward one another and to all so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen.